0: Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. This is Jay Martin. Now, my guest today is Paul Sankey. He is the lead analyst at Sankey Research, an energy analyst, a very, very respected energy analyst, regularly appears on most mainstream media platforms. He's a bit of a legend on Wall Street. And the reason I wanted to talk to Paul today was because I am trying to understand the geopolitical implications of Russia's invasion on Ukraine, thinking forward over the next decade. And typically, when I'm trying to understand a situation, the smartest route to take is to follow the money. And in this case, however, I'm following the energy because I believe what will dictate how Europe will act, how China will act, how the U.S. will act will be 100% reliant on the supply and demand of energy. And that is the big thread in this story that I think is the most significant. So with Paul today, I wanted to create a better understanding of three things. Number one, how is Europe going to survive this? They are heavily dependent on Russia oil and gas and don't have a lot of accessible options to replace that supply. And the supply is obviously coming from their biggest threat. Number two, how will the U.S. adapt to this? They do have options, but Russia does supply about 10% of oil and gas, and that is a significant number, not one that can be solved immediately, although there are solutions close to them. And number three, how will China capitalize on this? I do believe at present, from what I see, they are positioned to be the big winner when it comes to uh, how this will resolve in terms of energy cost and access to fuel. And they're right now working with the Russians to develop more pipelines through Mongolia to China to purchase probably the supply that's currently flowing to Europe further compromising Europe. So, you know, there's a lot of dynamics at play here. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Paul because I learned a ton I hope you do too. And here is Paul Sankey. Enjoy. All right. What's up guys. Jay Martin here, investor and host of the Jay Martin show. I'm joined right now by Paul Sankey, the lead analyst at Sankey research. Paul, how are you doing? Fine. Thank you. How are you? Everything seems excellent. Fine. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you. And, um, Unpack a bunch of uh, concepts that I'm trying to understand better. We're talking about the energy market. And you know what I try to do with these interviews, Paul, is sit down with experts who understand a concept better than I do to help me determine what's actually worth paying attention to, right? Like we are bombarded with sensational headlines every day now more than ever. And so today I want to run through what you're paying attention to on the energy landscape. And I try to like compartmentalize this a little bit if I can,' We're looking at, you know the energy industry right now. Maybe let's look at China as a player and the various dynamics going on there. Europe as a player, same thing, and then the U.S. But I'll hand it over to you first. What are you paying the most attention to right now in the energy space?
1: Well, the the, the key thing is always demand, right? And that's under analyzed, and it's difficult to analyze because a lot of it is about the economy. And so you know, you very quickly get sucked into you know sort of the Fed and stuff and all sorts of permutations on what's going on economically, Uh, the Chinese actually keep it quite simple because uh, they just, you know, have yesterday put out a new high raised target for GDP and you kind of figure they're going to get there. And it's not as if they give you, you know, tons of data. And if they did, it would probably be a lie. So there's not that much to analyze weirdly enough with China, even though, you know, we would love to, but it's just not that much that can be done. And it's quite convenient what you said, because essentially the world oil market on the demand side is about a third Asia, about a third Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and about a third America's. So you've got a hundred million barrel a day oil market. It's a lot of oil, 1,200 mm. barrels a second. And the barrel is what you imagine a barrel is. That is to say, it's a pretty big amount of oil. So you've got about a third, a third, a third of the hundred million in those three regional buckets. And if you can get the demand side right, over time, you're going to be right on oil. And my joke is always that my job as an oil analyst doing equities on Wall Street is easy. All I've got to do is get the oil price right. That actually became a bit of a stale joke because at times over the last 10 years, the oil equities have actually disconnected from oil, the commodity, uh, which would be, you know, for your sophisticated viewers, would be multiple degradation. And, you know, there's various reasons why that can happen, but it did. And now you may have multiple expansion. It's very difficult to tell because there's so much noise. And then on the supply side, obviously, that's where people tend to, where oil analysts tend to talk. Uh, Essentially, there are, you could argue, four major producers. And by the way, the list of producers is quite small. You know, there's not that many places that produce a load of oil, but the three giants are saudi obviously um russia and the us Mm. and you could add uh canada into the us if you want to think about it geopolitically yeah they they produce large quantities of oil with russia you have russia pretty much and and the interest there tends to be between supplying europe and supplying china and asia and then in the Middle East, it gets a bit more complicated, but basically you have Saudi that tends to work in close uh, uh, cooperation and actually blood ties with the UAE, United Arab Emirates, who produce about, you know, around three, and a, three or four million barrels a day. Saudi, Russia, US will do about 10, 12 million barrels a day out of the hundred. So right. that's obviously 36 million barrels right there a day. And then this is where it gets complicated in terms of geopolitics, and perhaps not at the moment, is that you have Iran and Iraq, who are both, you know, very volatile at times, but are both where the oil is, Shia Muslims, as opposed to Sunni Muslims. And the Shia oil, which would be Iran and Iraq combined, is another would be a supergiant, would be another 8 million or so, potentially if they got their sanctions right could be easily as big as the other three, but essentially, obviously a split between Iran, currently under Mm -hmm. sanctions, and then Iraq, currently the Wild West. Right. And after that, the list actually kind of tails off. There's a whole load of other guys, North Africa. uh, We read about Libya a lot Mm -hmm. and other places with huge potential, which are just disaster areas, partly because of what we call the curse of oil which right. I can explain, but the curse of oil would be applied to Venezuela, for example, which easily could produce 10, 12 million barrels a day if you had Texans running it. right. But unfortunately, because of you know a long story, which I can tell if you've got an hour, uh, Venezuela is a total, complete and utter tragedy and, and disaster area all at the same time. But that's kind of the big dynamics. And you want to think about demand and how you think all demand is going, which is why, obviously, then you get into Tesla, how behavior is changing. Um, right. You know, in terms of how much oil we're using and on the supply side, whether or not Russia's going to invade Ukraine or not.
0: Yes. It's an interesting job. Yeah, no kidding. There's so much in there that I wanna I wanna pull on. So I'm gonna try to be specific here. Um <laughs> so uh so this week, uh, and keep in mind we're recording on March 9th for anybody watching us, we're probably gonna publish this one as soon as possible. But you know, Biden's big announcement, he's banning uh, Russian oil imports. And you know, I don't know. If that's just really lip service at this point. You know, it's just a public announcement because the corporations have already stopped importing, so it doesn't really matter. But I guess my my question there is, you know, that's U.S. and the U.K. at this point who have made that announcement. Do you expect and is it possible for Europe to follow suit and be the next domino, or are they too reliant? Like, could they do that?
1: They can't really do it. I mean, they 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 are just simply too dependent, and they they kind of screwed it all up. Needless to say, you know, if you wanted to be really cynical. You would say you don't want a 17-year-old making your energy policy, but actually there's a genuine continent-wide concern about the environment and a willingness, basically because you would say the US, excuse me, Europe is less of a consumption-led society. You know, there's more sort of moral concern at a given level about the environment. And it's also a consensus concern that, you know, there really is a major problem that needs to be addressed. Right. And so, you know, as a result of that, they've overcooked the extent to which they've tried to, well, essentially in their electricity systems, they've gone very dependent on wind, particularly in the UK and Germany, all the while uh, shutting down the biggest gas field in Europe, which was in Holland called Groningen, which used to be the swing, what we call the swing supplier of gas, because you have tremendous swings in, in demand for, for gas in Europe during winter. And then at the same time, shutting down Groningen, they shut down the biggest storage facility in the UK. 70% of their gas storage was shut down, which was boneheaded mm. uh, in 2016, the rough storage facility. What you do is you pump gas into depleted gas fields uh, and then pump it out again when you need it. They shut that, which was like, eh, I don't want it. I don't think you should do that. And then right. the German Green Party was actually originally back in the 70s anti-nuclear. That was the big concern. Was really around things like Three Mile Island, the big U.S. nuclear disaster. Yeah, that we don't want nuclear power. And so weirdly, which because of course you get into whether or not nuclear power is dangerous and whether or not it's friendly for emissions relative to any other energy. And they're on the dangerous nuclear power track. And so they shut down. They're kind of still in the process, in theory, of shutting down all their nuclear baseload. So you need to know a little bit about electricity generation in all of this electricity. Cannot be stored. There's a couple of minor ways you can do it, um, but batteries are not of the scale yet to really make any difference. So when you flick on a light, that electricity has to be available. And everybody flicks on the lights generally at night Mm. when there's no solar. Mm. Wind tends to correlate. So basically, it's either windy everywhere or it's not. And it tends to run. So basically, if it's not windy, it tends to be not windy for two, three, four days or windy for two, three, four days. I think everyone intuitively knows that. And there's no battery that can make up for that. So essentially you need a base load power. You need something running all the time, which nuclear is ideal for. And then you need uh, peaking when you need peaking, when there's no wind and the sun and and gas, Nat gas is ideal for that. The problem is someone along the line got Nat gas lumped in with coal as bad for the environment and called it fossil fuels. Right. And that's the that's the overstep. And you know what, Jay? I forgot the question. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on. I want to pull on that. I mean, I'm boring myself to tears here. I hope the viewers are okay.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you hit on an important point. You're right. You know, when we talk about fossil fuels, we lump things like coal and natural gas into that bucket, which perform very, very differently. You know, I, I guess back to uh, yeah, I asked about Europe and the likelihood that they could ban Russian oil imports the way that the UK. In the U.S. has? Yeah, I remember the question. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems unlikely because there's certain countries like Italy is, how much of Italy's oil comes from Russia?
1: Is it? I mean, it's a lot. They're They're not that oil. They're not as oily as the U.S., right? So we use about 20 barrels of oil per head per year here, believe it or not. Europe uses about 10. Okay. China uses about two or three, and India uses one. So each person uses one in India, 20 in the U.S., and 10 in Europe. And as you know, actually, it's partly because of the roads in Europe, you know, they're kind of built for horses. So you can't drive an Escalade in Europe, it just doesn't, I mean, you can drive them on the freeways, but you can't park them in the town. Yeah, yeah. So there's a much more efficient use of oil there. But the thing about oil is it has something that we call a convenience premium, which is that where you're sitting, if you decided to burn energy now, uh, you could go in the garden and get some wood and, and start a bonfire. You could go to the to the uh, gas station but you could go to the deli and get some uh, lighter fuel and that would be oil that's effectively oil that you could then burn on the spot and i guess you could kind of in theory find some coal i don't know where you would buy it or charcoal so those are your immediate options if you think about it and you know two of them are obviously pretty clumsy charcoal and charcoal and wood but the oil is actually pretty energy dense and you could probably sensibly light your house in a crisis using an oil-fired lamp, believe it or not. Right. Uh, But with natural gas, you know, I don't know um, about your specific local permitting, but natural gas, it might take you, you might might be physically impossible ever to get natural gas into your house, right? Uh, Because it might be against the law now, believe it or not, which is again, incredibly stupid where they ban natural gas uh, Mm. linkages because natural gas is really good for cooking. And for heating, it's very efficient. So you should be using it. It's also, you know, compared to what's happening in China, it's just not that damaging for the environment. And that's where the global environmental agenda is just a total, you know, shambles. Because you've got India and China burning all this coal. And then in Berkeley, California, you can't use, you know, gas in your home to to cook with a wok. It totally doesn't make any sense. But anyway, the long and short of it is that you have a convenience premium for oil, which means that it's very replaceable when you think about it at a a high level. So basically, it's what we call fungible. So if you can't buy oil from Russia, you can go and buy it from Libya, you know, Uh, because the the system is actually quite flexible in terms of your ability to move the stuff around. By the same token, the gas supply is very fixed. So, you know, if if Russian gas gets cut off to Germany, if Russian gas gets cut off to Italy, you don't have any gas. Especially right. not okay. in Germany because they don't have any, idiotically, quite frankly, they don't have any regas terminals. So, regas is when you bring in liquid natural gas, which is super chilled natural gas, uh, you know, from Qatar, Trinidad, US. You can then, that's obviously gives you that flexibility when you need the extra gas, you can bring it into the country. Everywhere yeah. in Europe has tons of regas terminals, including Italy, but not Germany. So They're they completely they, they completely blew this one.
0: Is uh, that why, would that be why Germany was the most hesitant to impose sanctions on Russia? They were the last <laughs> country standing uh, when it came to banning Russia from SWIFT. Would that be why? Yep. Yeah, that's why. Interesting. So then that, that puts the leverage back in the hands of the Russians, I suppose, because if Europe can't abstain from Russian gas, maybe Russia, and there's now, correct me if I've got this, Incorrect, but China is now discussing a new gas deal with Gazprom, right, to purchase additional gas from Russia. Could Russia find a new customer for the gas that's currently selling to Europe?
1: Yeah, the, the, the Chinese will take everything you can get, but you have to build monster pipelines, right? Because it's an awful long way because the if, gas essentially comes from the Arctic, you know, kind of think about sort of north of St. Petersburg or something. Okay. And then from the Urals, which is what we call, the, you'll now, now probably know the name of the Russian crude grade is Urals. That's the Ural Mountains, which is all in the middle. And that's just, it's just a long way to think about, you know, the map. So again, you can't just flick the switch on this, but long term, China needs all the gas it can get. Basically, because the amount of coal that the Chinese are burning is killing the population. So they have horrific emphysema problems and stuff. Right, And that, you know, you really don't want to be burning as much coal as as they are. So, you know, one of my key lines about the environment is, is, you know, the problem is global, but the solutions are local. And that's why you get really dumb things in North America. Like there's a mountain valley pipeline here, which would take Marcellus gas, which we literally call the Saudi Arabia of natural gas around Pennsylvania. There was recently, for example, it's insane that in New England, you burn Qatari gas from Qatar. And you don't burn Marcellus, basically, because they won't allow pipelines to be built because they're being environmentally friendly. It's just the boneheaded, you know, it's incredible. Mm. And by the same token, there was a gas pipeline going south called the Mountain Valley Pipeline MVP, which recently was blocked by a federal judge, 96% complete and $6 billion sunk in the ground. And the judge said, we can't let it cross the Appalachian Trail. And, you know, you got to remember these things are safe and they cross underground. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not an eyesore. It's buried. Yeah. So the idea that these things are dangerous is, is really kind of dumb. It really is basically dumb. Additionally, the existing pipeline infrastructure is old in the US, so you should really be replacing it all. And finally, they won't build a grid because nobody wants the power lines. So, you know, it's, the whole thing's a terrible mess. But, yeah, China will take what Russia can give. But don't get it wrong. In the the short term, uh, a couple of things happened. Number one, the oil industry dropped Russian oil like a bad habit, actually for financial reasons. Because when you buy oil, these tankers are real big. You probably haven't seen one. They take 2 million barrels. It's not unusual to have a 2 million barrel tanker. That is an enormous ship. And if you put 2 million barrels on it, you've got at $100 a barrel, you've got $200 million of oil. You don't just fill up and you know click the guy a credit card. You need a letter of credit. You need a line of credit. You need insurance. You need insurance for the cargo. You need insurance for the ship. And when they put these sanctions on Russia, that whole chain just broke down immediately, and Russian oil right. just was dropped like almost immediately. And that was frankly to me, I shouldn't have been a surprise to me, but it was just how fast the system just went. Right. And, um, BP, and which wanted BP that wanted to get out of Russia, added to it because they used the excuse. Of the attack to get the hell out of Russia, finally, without you know, so they could do a write down in their shoulders. We go, yeah, I get it. Yes. And as soon as BP left, then all the other companies had to do the same. So there was a, an incredible effect of these financial sanctions on the oil industry, for the gas industry, as you know. Actually, we started using more Russian gas, and incredibly, a lot of it coming through Ukraine, basically because the financial system kept working and the assets are fixed. So there's, there, as you say, there's nothing really they could do.
0: Right. Right. And that's why I guess when I heard Biden's announcement, it was kind of like, yes, yeah, I get it. But this is this has already happened. Right. From the corporation standpoint, you said yeah, the uh, problem with
1: the Biden administration is that they were so keen to present green credentials, basically because the environment polls very well with young people, sure it does. polls very well with Democrats and with I believe it polls well with women. I'd have to check that. But essentially young people you know worried about the environment needless to say and they thought you know they just wanted to hammer an environmental message even though a lot of it is just bs hypocrisy which i hope you know your listeners will work to better understand what we call energy density which is basically that this much oil can drive a hummer for two miles it would take a significant amount of time of of uninterrupted solar power to generate the same electricity so you can't just say okay let's switch to solar it doesn't make any sense it's interruptible right and it doesn't Not have happening. the energy it's very simple it doesn't have the energy density of oil yes and therefore right. replacing it is very difficult but yeah okay. so basically the administration came to power they wanted it to be environmentally friendly they didn't want to hire anyone with oil in their history so they really don't know anything about oil and
0: look where it ended up right okay okay so on the china front, you know that's just a deepening relationship the uh this this new pipeline if it can get built from russia to china would have to go through mongolia it's not a near-term solution obviously but i guess it's on trend i think china's invested 60 billion in russian gas infrastructure in the last five years have i got that right somewhere around there
1: uh i wrote about russia in early january and you can get the note on my website The numbers—it depends how you start counting it, because basically there's already a lot of existing infrastructure that's being built. There's there's huge pipelines already. Yes. What's been really staggering is just the scale of China's energy use and the growth of China's energy use. And I'll give you an example, which is just enormous. Last year, Chinese electricity demand grew 12. Okay, it was a lot. Demand. Chinese 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 electricity demand with 1.4, whatever it is, billion people is bigger than. US and Europe combined. Right. So when China grows 12%, you add Japan. Now, I know what you know what Japan looks like if you think about Japan at night. It's pretty lit up. Right. And it's 100 million people. You know, every year China's adding Japan. So when you say, did they spend 60 billion? It's like, dude, you know, yeah, you'd have to go back through a whole load of stuff to work out how much they spent, but they have to spend a lot. China has more coal
0: fired plants under construction. We have coal-fired plants, right? China's—they're laughing then because you know they need everything Russia can sell them. It's in their best interest that US, that, that the UK, that Europe eventually bans Russian gas, so they can buy it maybe even on the cheap, right? Go to uh yeah go to uh well, I mean yeah
1: it's it's this is a Wall Street controversy you know how much did China want this to happen right. why did Putin, why did Putin wait for the end of the winter Olympics yeah all this stuff what the hell is going on here are, do, are we looking at a new world order where the Chinese just try and grow their economy domestically sure and don't care about the rest of the world these are all mega questions what's the value of money now that you just took all the money off the Central bank of Russia all of these things and more my friend
0: Yes. Okay. And there, <laughs> I mean, could there, this might be too esoteric. Could there be some retribution here thinking about, I guess, you know, land that Russia more or less took from China near the end of the opium wars, you know, China can now make its comeback. You're looking at, um, you're looking at it
1: that, that again goes, complicated. I think the general view to keep it simple is would China use Russia and Ukraine to invade Taiwan, which is kind of the big one. And just to add to the excitement taiwan had a major power cut at like peak ukraine fear so everyone was like including me was like whoops here we go but actually it was just generally some dude clicked the wrong switch in the power taiwanese power generation thankfully generally i think the chinese are about the chinese right and so they're just trying to you know actually really the chinese about the communist party chinese powers about maintaining power for the communist party in a kind of complete big brother totalitarian way i would hate to live there i don't know if you've ever been there but it's just a nightmare kind of thing so they're just totally acting in what they perceive to be the interests of the chinese communist party which is basically to control everyone get them all moving in one direction and um you know they need energy you know there's i don't know i don't know where to start and end with china but basically They, they act totally in their own interests. Specific stuff around the edges tends to be that they'll fight for Nepal, for example. They'll beat up the Uyghur Muslims and put them in concentration camps. All that stuff is about protecting the core of China, right? South China Sea. It's not about trying to invade Australia. It's about making sure no one gets close to the core of China. Right. Okay.
0: Okay. So I think I understand that clearly. And, and to me, you know, I see a logical sequence of events, whether it's the last, you know, at least half decade of investment in Russian gas infrastructure, uh, new deals on the table, but all this plays to the favor of China, it seems to anyways. We talked about Europe. I want to talk about the US because Russian gas, it's maybe, what? what is it? Or Russian oil is a 10% of US consumption? Uh, it
1: bounced around, actually. I mentioned to you how much each tanker carries. So it literally kind of depends whether a 2 million barrel tanker arrives or not, because on that day, obviously it would be 2 million barrels a day and then there won't be any tankers for a while. But I can tell you that, you know, I cover Valero and and these guys and I I know them well and they've stopped buying Russian oil. So yeah, I mean, it depends on how you count it, but I spoke to the State Department um, off the record, but on the record, because it's a fact, the number they were using was 800,000 barrels a day of Russian imports. And uh, that's, that sounds high to me because, but anyway, let's say it is 800 a day normalized, which is say pre-Ukraine, that would be out of 20 million total demand. Yes, And actually at times that would be a lot of what we import. Okay. Yeah, because, But then again, Canada is 4 million barrels a day. So, you know, the, the, the real big supplier that we have that most people kind of don't know is that Canada is by far our biggest source of import. Right. God bless the Canadians.
0: Yes. God bless the Canadians. I love it. All right. Well, you know, either way, the US has to refill that supply. Right. And what are the options on the table? I guess, Paul, I know that President Biden apparently is talking to Venezuela about restarting that industry. To your point, you know, maybe 30 years ago, it was a mega producer and could be again, but that's going to take a lot of time and money. Canada's right next door to the north. But what else? I mean, you mentioned Iran. You mentioned well, this we could drill more. I mean, obviously,
1: I, I think where you're heading here is do you know do we drill more in the U.S. and that's a big question for Wall Street because people are saying you know I blame Wall Street for the oil companies not drilling more and you know it's sort of just a moronic thing to say because you know well who you know what is Wall Street? How are you going to define Wall Street? I always call myself a Wall Street analyst, but I worked at Deutsche Bank on Wall Street, you know, literally. So. I could claim to be a Wall Street analyst because my address was 60 Wall Street. By the way, if you watch the big short, I always joke there's an extra in that movie playing me because I used to sit on the morning call with the, with the Ryan Gosling guy yelling about the property market while I was <laughs> yelling about oil. But anyway we could draw more here we can buy more from venezuela but it's suboptimal you know because they're kind of a disaster area those guys they're really not treating the people of venezuela right you know and we shouldn't be supporting these guys and by the way the same applies to the iranians i mean these mad mullahs you know they should be out of business man they're not good people in terms of the political structure they're not democracies you know and all the rest of it and north, for that matter is russia so that's the problem with our oil use in a lot of ways, and you know it's a bit like how you deal with your environmental footprint. If you're worried about the environment, environment, you should you should try and go net zero. You know, try and see if you can become net zero. It's theoretically possible. You're going to have to plant a load of trees on every year, or use a lot less energy like you're gonna have jay yeah, you're gonna have to give up your private plane dude but you know that's what by the way pisses me off about john kerry it's like this guy's flying around in a private plane you know? and it's a little bit the same with leonardo it's like okay so you get to to hang out on the massive yacht with loads of supermodels but i've got to you know what do i have to do you know to, right. in order to stop your environmental footprint it's absolutely hypocrisy of the yes. worst kind and by the way the same applies to greta she's a swedish school girl that's been brought up in one of the richest most advanced countries in the world thanks to fossil fuels and now she's turning around and saying you know stop you indians you know stop you horrible chinese people from using so much energy it's like shut up <laughs> so there's this there's, there's a major problem with the amount of energy we use relative to what it's doing to the environment but these people who preach at me about it you know they can they can all go and get lost but the big one would definitely be that we would produce more here jay because we we can actually if the companies plan on higher prices and the problem that a wall street analyst will tell you like me is okay so what's your price what do you think the price is going to be and will you guarantee it for me because you know why would i risk my money just just to make you feel better about not using russian oil because that's what you're asking them to do i'm a shareholder and you know let's say i'm a shareholder in Pioneer or uh, Devon or one of the great US EMPs, why would I have to put my money up to save president Biden's skin after all he's done you know against the oil industry, all the rhetoric against the oil industry when the oil price was freaking negative two years ago i didn't hear them trying to save the oil, oil industry then, and now you need it and you're like, why aren't you up producing more oil? And I say, I'll tell you why I'm not producing more oil because two years ago the oil price was negative. Jay, in November the oil price was 60. That's right. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. What do you So you, what, what, What's what? What do you want? If I'm doing an annual planning assumption, what, what should I use? And can you guarantee I'll get that price in, in a year's time? And nobody can. Not a chance. Because as we started the, the demand side, we had, demand might just go away in a rush. We could get another COVID, man. We could go back to negative in six months. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm going to look like a bit of a muppet when I, you know, have, have dropped an extra two. And by the way, the, the amount of money you have to spend is is, is not you know, it's not peanuts. It's like okay, I've got to write a check for hundred million dollars, so that President Biden feels better about the fact that he messed up the oil the oil policy.
0: Right. Yes. Now, what is this? What's your outlook? I suppose, Paul, for these consumer implications. Right. We're we're talking about short term, you know, price at the pump, et cetera. What's the average right now? Is it about five bucks per gallon? Is that is that high? Are we headed there?
1: Yeah, you should be. I mean, the difference across the U.S. is. No, California pays a lot more, but yeah, yeah, it just depends on the tax by state. The price of gasoline, actually, talking about as I was, the fungibility of oil, the fact that it it's kind of oil everywhere. The 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 gasoline price is actually global on an underlying basis. Uh, I'm just looking at the oil price if we. It's really the difference is tax. So in the UK, for example, they pay like right now they're paying like twelve dollars a gallon, but they normally pay pay eight. That's a function. That's just entirely a function of tax, literally. Here, you know, as you know, the difference is California has high tax, New York has high tax, and uh, Texas really doesn't or whatever. So that's the difference. See, it's more in reality about sticker shock that people see the price and they they pay cash, and they're like, oh my god, you know, last week I was paying three and now I'm paying four dollars a gallon, and it's and it's seventy dollars, eighty dollars, ninety dollars, a hundred dollars. It's not actually at a U.S. level that much money. You know, people pay a hundred dollars. Uh, you know, for a meal out, I don't know what. But it obviously is the major concern is it's regressive, which is to say it hurts poor people hugely. You know, that Mm -hmm. might be a day's wages for a a, a, a minimum wage person. And, you know, for the J with the private jet, what do you care, you know, when you fill your Bugatti? But the fact is, that's the concern, is that what we're in here is a rich get richer, poor get poorer tape in general. And then you add, you know, something really regressive, like high energy prices, and people don't have a choice. You know, they have to drive to work, they have to heat their home, and they get crushed by it. And so that's the concern, I'm afraid to say, and it is a concern. And, you know, by the way, there's a lot of nasty things about this Ukrainian situation, needless to say, but the price of wheat is really bad. You know, that's like going to be famine in Egypt type stuff, you know, and I'm not, that's not figurative. That's Egypt is the one of the biggest buyers of Ukrainian wheat. And they're really not very rich. So yeah, it's a major, it's a major problem and a major concern.
0: What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note. If you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market sign up at cambridgehouse.com i publish every week and it's free now back to the conversation so given what you shared yeah a lot of this is is non-negotiable our demand for oil but you know so then do you figure that prices could eventually get to a point that are creating demand destruction at home is that is that a significant well number? i'm sure
1: people i mean i'm sure people now even rich people and you know you don't seem to be responding very Very well to my Bugatti jerks, Jay. But anyway, um (laughs) it's just maybe they're just not funny. Yeah, we we look at how high can prices go based on what point do you destroy demand, right? That's the notional. If you think about basic supply and demand, that's obviously how it works. So basically, very low prices and you reduce supply and you increase demand, very high, you increase supply and reduce demand. And it works like that. It, It does actually work like that. It's distorted because. The U S is really one of the few places where you and I now can say, okay, let's, let's, I believe in $120 oil forever. I'm going to go, I'm going to go down to Texas. I'm going to lease some land and I'm going to drill a well. And we could actually do that. There's actually a lot of places where you can't, for example, let's go and try and do it in Russia. I don't think so. Let's try and do it in Venezuela. Not so much. And, you know, obviously Saudi, if you start listing off the places I listed where the oil comes from, Mm -hmm. you're left with us and Canada. We could do it in Canada. Um, you can't do it in the UK. You can't do it in France. Um, it's it's uh, One of the key subtleties is that here you have mineral rights. So basically, you have the land ownership and you have the mineral rights ownership. And so you can buy or sell the rights to what's underneath the land. And that means that you can actually reimburse the landowner for the environmental risk of running an oil rig, which is a pretty noisy, dirty, dangerous thing, on their land, and just pay them a check. Um, it's, you know, I'll get a bit convoluted there and I'll not continue that point, but it's really worth considering. But the point is ultimately that we could go and start an oil company here in the U S and we could reasonably be producing oil, you and me, J Paul oil within a year. So why not do it? That's what I would say to anyone who's saying, why doesn't the industry produce more oil? I'm like, well, you can be part of the industry as much as I can. Right. In fact, so the nationwide price today is third three, nine is four. 25 a gallon uh, is nationwide retail. And then that's, you just add a buck for New York or California. So it's going to be 525 New York, California. And then I think there's a gas station in Beverly Hills joking about Bugettes, which is more like seven, right? And everyone photographs that one.
0: Right, right, right. So given the the lack of barriers to entry, it would make sense then that the US is gonna fill this demand gap at home. There's no reason. I mean, Biden may go talk to Venezuela to say, oh, I tried, right? I looked at all the options, but at the end of the day, why would they do anything else except produce more at home? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's bad policy. I mean, it's emergency management, right? So you're just saying, oh my God, Americans vote against any politician that causes high gas prices. Just bring it, forget all that environmental stuff. I said, you know, forget that the Venezuelans are you know, destroying their own economy with really bad kind of fascist government. Um, just get the gasoline price down in the US, let's do whatever we need. Release the SPR, talk to Venezuela, give the Iranians, you know what I mean? It's just really bad policy. I and mean, I don't, I, I, I disapprove strongly as you can tell. And as, as you're noting that it's bad for US consumers, but it's kind of not the end of the world in terms of, it is a marginal choice for a lot of people to drive. So what happens is, well, people, and I feel bad for them, low-income people still have to kind of go to work and drive their cars. Actually, what happens at the margin is a lot of Americans start using one of the two cars that's more efficient. Maybe even they have might even have an electric car. Um, they do less trips they fill up a fixed amount, you know, so you see at gas stations, people fill up 40 bucks, and then they drive very defensively. Then, you know, you know, do what New York cab drivers, I'm always telling them to stop doing, which is, you know, accelerate to the blights and then brake, it uses a ton of gas. And you would think that all of that was marginal, but us or us gasoline demand is 10 million barrels a day. So there's one in 10 barrels used in the world. And, you know, with 300, whatever it is, 333 million Americans, when they all, they all the beauty of the American economy is the is the homogeneity of it. You know, the fact that wherever you go and order a Diet Coke, you get pretty much the same service in terms right. of what you receive. Hmm. It doesn't work like that in Europe, by the way. But the point is that when something changes in the US, it tends to be a tabletop model that is to say everybody changes their behavior at the same time. And we think that price is actually 450, Jay, further to your question. Okay. So we're at 425 right now. Now 450 is guaranteed you know because of the price, it takes time for the whole system as i mentioned to feed crude prices through to the pump and uh-huh. you're going to see 450 450 per gallon for sure you're saying yeah which would be 10 in beverly Hills. right uh, okay no, it would be it would be it'll, be it'll be it'll be at least 550 in
0: california and new york uh, so so America. if i can if i can simplify like what i what i think i understand so far and i'll probably bastardize this because i'm that's what i do but uh you seem like a pretty small
1: guy to me mate. Yeah, you know,
0: we we opened up compartmentalizing into into three main buckets, China, Europe, US and from what i have heard you say, you know, Europe's getting the worst deal here, right? They're they're pretty hamstrung right now. They don't have a lot of options, reliant on enemy resources, um difficult to replace. China's probably going to be the big winner because this accelerates the trajectory they were already on of buying more gas from Russia, and now they can do so probably cheaper than they would have been able to prior to the war. And the US is going to do what they should have done anyways a long time ago, which is more domestic supply. Is that accurate? Yeah.
1: And then there's the Norwegians. Let's talk about the Norwegians. The Norwegians are yeah. great. Norway is just born lucky, man. They have 98% hydro, which is, you know, right. You know, you know, nobody has ninety-eight and hydro. Well, I think British
0: have- Columbia, you know, the province of Canada where I, I live, was like ninety-six percent when I was growing I stand up. Stand
1: corrected. Yeah, <laughs> but but I don't know how much oil and gas you produce. But Norway produces and exports a ton of oil and gas. Yeah, but no, yeah, you're 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 basically right. I mean, you can debate. Um, we could debate China a lot longer because they are massively net import dependent, right? So mm-hmm. generally, very high energy prices, oil and gas prices, not going to be good for them. But you could, exactly as you are arguing, it's reasonable to say that I think part of Putin's um, calculus here was that he could, he could screw Europe because he had weak leadership and energy dependence. And the out would be that exactly as you say, he would be able to sell it to China if they cut him off. Right. Uh, I mean, I think he totally miscalculated and I wrote my research on the subject was that he wouldn't he would he would take the east of Ukraine. I didn't know what he would do about Kiev, but th- it would be a disaster for him to try and take the West. And the risk would be that Europe would turn around and cut him off. And I think, it just happened. He could, it, well, first of all, he didn't get a quick military bit, victory, which was a mm. disaster. The Russian army just completely embarrassed itself. He's totally weakened himself. They've shut the McDonald's in Russia, which is not as facile a comment as it sounds. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, the opening of the McDonald's in Russia was a big deal. Um, okay. So the shutting by the same token is too. Although I do fairly, you know, kind of appreciate the joke that the Russians are going to be much better mental health in terms of not having, you know, new <laughs> porn. What's it called? You porn? Uh, YouTube? What's that thing with porn, porn, whatever Be cut off. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know no mcdonald's no netflix and no whatever the other thing was but you know yeah i get it but no it's it's actually uh it is bad and it is bad domestically and it's kind of horrible because you kind of can't protest in russia without risking Mm -hmm. your life you know (laughs) So, you should always thank your lucky stars and well, travel and look at these places and realize how difficult life is in a lot of places to appreciate your own life,
0: you know. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we just got through this big freedom convoy up here in Canada that ended up making headlines around the world. Canada rarely makes headlines around the world, and obviously, it was a super contentious issue here at home, yeah. And uh, on Wall
1: Street, mate, on Wall Street, we were following that, we were like, What the hell. Yeah. So since, yeah. since when do we have a major intellectual yeah. debate over the value of money and government overreach you know coming out of canada the world totally. is yeah. and loopy you know
0: yeah and i landed on the side of like i just support civil disobedience as a blanket rule doesn't Good mean any agri- tactics or the uh the values but it doesn't matter right it's important it's very important man i got hated on for that though i published a newsletter where i wrote exactly that like here i'm not here's why this is important here's why we need to let this happen and and in my opinion here's why this is a failure of our leadership to be honest you to disengage from it completely yeah oh man did i get some hate for that one okay so 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 what's what
1: what is who are those people that are hating are they kind of what they pro canada what is that argument
0: well i think that that we're people are very sensitive right now and they they you know most of us a lot of individuals have joined a team right so you're either on you're on team mandate or team vaccination or team freedom or whatever you know and anything right. that offends you know a core pillar of that like you can't blend you can't bl- blend yeah. belief systems you're this or that and if you're not this you must be that which means you're against this and it's like yeah. obviously the world's not that simple right that's silly but somehow we've landed in this like tribalism mindset uh, mean,
1: canada's been as far as the, the, the vaccine mandates and everything, it's just been completely insane. I mean, my sister's in Australia and it's just full-scale insanity. It's like, you know, people you. have absolutely lost track of what we were trying to do in the first place, which was to flatten the curve, you know? And it, it turned into just this absolute in, insanity. And, you know, by the way, if you don't want to get vaccinated, good luck, man. It's fine by me. You know what I mean? It's just like, I don't know. People just absolutely lost their minds. And I'm like you. I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm on the side of, of you know, libertarian sort of uh, don't be telling me what to do kind of stuff. And um mm. yeah, I, I just I was staggered by the extent that people thought that you should make kids wear masks and stuff. It was like, what the fuck? You
0: <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah, and thankfully, my I've, my oldest son is five. I've got three little boys, but they're five, three, and one, so we're not really in the school system. But my five year old is in a completely outdoor school. There's we found this like really alternative. It's in the forest. <laughs> There's one <laughs> yurt. There's one yurt. It's like a tent. For kindergarten <laughs> through grade seven. But they're outside. All the lessons are outside. They're down by the river. They're, you know. How's that work in the winter? Yeah, they're outside. The, like, uh... It builds tough little squamish kids. Yeah. We're it's we scary. looked at this, we looked at the school systems and we're like, you know, what's a core value we wanna we really want to ingratiate here? And and resilience came to mind. It's like, how do you build resilience into a five-year-old? You know, well, they gotta be comfortable being yeah. uncomfortable. Let's start by just being outside in cold, wet conditions. Look, I want to I want to dial back to uh, your comments about about uh, about this this war not going the way Putin thought it was, and you know I I see the same thing everybody's seeing like the the Russian military is in disrepair, broken down machines, stuck in the mud, troops are under resourced, underfed, all of this stuff, and they're not getting the wins they claimed they thought they would get. Part of my mind was like, but and then these sanctions maybe have been more overwhelming than Putin thought they would be. You know, Europe unified more than he thought they would. All of this stuff. But part of my mind was like, he's a smart guy. You know, maybe there's been some some fumbles on the battlefield, but I thought he would have had to expect every single sanction that's come his way, maybe even including Swift. And if that's the case, like is what's what what else is up his sleeve? Or is this it? Do you think what we're seeing is what's what the game plan is? You know, let's just repatriate Ukraine, or is there something else underlying? What do you think?
1: I, I I think it was a um, cascading series of disasters, right? So all mm. the, all of the things, you know, if if you do the decision tree of what can go wrong, blah blah blah, it literally all went upright. You know what I mean? In terms sure. of every single thing that could go wrong, went wrong. In terms of he didn't yeah. get a quick military victory, he got really severe sanctions. He he got probably more sanctions the, than 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 he anticipated. Okay. You know, all, all of those things basically went the wrong way for him. I mean, I was writing about Russia. Well, I, I started writing about Germany prior, at around the time of the elections in Germany. But subsequently, when I wrote about Russia in January like 5th this year, I wrote to the clients, can you name the German chancellor, right? The only answer I got was somebody who wrote back and said, yeah, I can. He's never called Vladimir Putin, right? now people kind of know what the german chancellor's name is right but at that time and also it was a coalition that included the greens that was in the, the and the way the german system was especially with the coalition between the election and actually getting a government together it takes like six months you know mm. so it's all kind of a bit of a wishy-washy mess and of course they're pretty as for reasons that we can probably imagine they're pretty nervous about having a significant military significant military so basically you know there was the weakness then Boris Johnson is, you know, pretty famously some variation on a clown. And of course, Biden, you know, the rude comment would be he doesn't know he's president. Right. So there was all of that suddenly coalesced, you know, and and in fact, Biden showed that he is very experienced in foreign policy. It's actually his strongest suit, Mm. Uh, even notwithstanding the Afghanistan withdrawal disaster. He's a guy that's known for his foreign policy historically, Mm. you know, Bojo the clown, basically kind of did the we're not you know we can't tolerate this and we're you know he was emboldened and as was um essentially macron who's very unpopular in france and schultz just stood right up and came right at him straight away you know what i mean and so none of that was expected um Mm. and and you know the list goes on but i think particularly the fact that he didn't get a clean quick military victory and then it turns like super cool. The first thing was that Putin had started having meetings at a table that was like 40 meters long. And it was like, yes. I don't know if this guy's that. Well, you know, And like the Finnish president visited him. And he obviously Finland has a particular interest in Russian military uh, plans and the president and he was like, he's changed, you know, the word was he's changed. Like, we had heard two years ago that huh. he's sick. And there's definitely a working theory that he's sick. And that might have caused him to make some bad Miscalculations, right? Um, but then uh, Macron has said the guy's changed, you know, and he's gone that bit loopy with this forty, the forty foot uh, table. One of the theories being that he's got an autoimmune problem, which is why he has to sit at one end of a forty foot table. Yeah, call it forty yeah. meters, forty feet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So there was all of that. That was a and and you wouldn't have made that stuff up in a Hollywood movie. You know what I mean? If you'd put him, it's like something from the famous Peter Sellers film about this sort of stuff. Dr. Strangelove, you know, having him, or, or, or Austin Powers, you know, it was like an Austin Powers table that he's sitting at. But the other thing that was beyond any Hollywood script was the idea that that Ukraine would have, you know, a president that had starred, you know, the story. And so that you couldn't mm-hmm. have made that up. You know what I mean? And if you really look at it, these wars are fought on the internet. And so suddenly it's like, wow, the Ukrainian flag is an unbelievably strong brand. You know, a lot of flags in the world Pretty much difficult. My father was a diplomat. Pretty much difficult to pick out one from the other. Ukrainian flag is a superb brand, right? Sure. And, you know, sure enough, the president just absolutely, you know, fulfilled what, as I said, was beyond a Hollywood script insofar as the real war is on the Internet today. yeah. And that's why China controls its Internet. That's why Russia shuts its Internet, because they know that if people start reading what actually happened, same applies to China. They're cooked. And that's that's what's so interesting about so much of this is that the idea of a ground military land invasion in Europe, the first since 1945, was pretty insane. Yes. But then to completely and utterly get destroyed in the Internet war, which they did, which is the bigger war, arguably, was also just an enormous moment in history.
0: Right. You know, it's, it's what you share there about about Putin. I've been wondering because either like, yeah, he's seriously ill. And I think you just probably make very different decisions when you're facing your own mortality, or, you know, the, the COVID scenario that you outline. Everybody I know, myself included, have gone through some, some kind of like a, a mental health crisis in the last two years, just as a consequence of being isolated. Maybe if you like I did I don't know, collectively ended up doing eight weeks of quarantine, I got three kids like it was bananas. But I had it pretty good right? I've got a great property. I love my kids. It's awesome. But you know, everybody reacted in in weird ways. And I saw the best and the worst of probably everybody I know, including myself at certain points. And what you can do, you know how you can act in those moments is dependent on what you have access to. You know, if you have access to Russia's military and, and you know, you, I don't know. I just wonder, like, what influences are in the psychology of Vladimir Putin that are, are motivating these decisions? And maybe it's not as simple. Maybe there's some deep rooted things there. That's, I don't know. he's definitely gone loopy. And it's not as if he's surrounded by the guys <laughs> saying, I think you're wrong there, Vlad. You know what I mean? I mean that's <laughs> the thing. You, you know, you, you create your own echo chamber. Right. And then eventually totally, you're always totally, right. I mean, there's no
1: just, question about um, that. And, and the chat from like the Pentagon is that if he's going to get killed, it's going to be the FSB. It will be the, the security forces that keep him in power. And of course, you know, the other thing is the oligarchs, if you've got a $600 million yacht, you yeah. kind of don't want to get it taken away, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. it's been an absolute disaster at the power structure of, of Russia level as well, because suddenly it's like, I mean, it's not like she and Putin aren't paranoid, right? They're paranoid. Really. Sure they are.
0: So Well, you know, the oligarchs bring up an interesting point. I was wondering that too. Do you think the CIA is infiltrating, you know, individual oligarchs right now and saying, look, like you're about to lose everything, You know, we need a coup. We need some kind of a uh, a takeover here. That, that yeah. But I mean, it's not Like Putin hasn't thought of that.
1: But you know, I, I I wouldn't be. You know, it's very difficult with these things. I mean, Gaddafi was in charge of Libya, including U.S. bombing missions in '86, directly trying to hit his tent. He lived. The guy lived in a tent. That's right. Um, That's right. And they failed. You know what I mean? They couldn't get rid of the guy. And then when it fell apart for him, the Arab Spring. The Tunisian fruit stand seller self-immolated December 2010, uh, which was, by the way, as a function partly of very high wheat prices at the time. Keep that in mind, and then that started the Arab Spring. Gaddafi was killed by February, murdered by uh, insurgents by February. So you know what I mean. These things can change really fast, and. Mm. You're always slightly wondering when these guys are just going to suddenly disappear from the world stage, which is eventually going to happen anyway. But, you know, w- who will last the longest is always is always a pretty interesting. Uh, I mean, it, 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 you, he could suddenly be gone, you know, given a yeah. disaster. If he was a CEO, we're not really joking about the Ukraine, but, you know, if he was if, if notionally, what we're saying is if he was a CEO, he would be gone. Right. For sure. this one, this one's a bad one.
0: Okay. Now, last last question for you. You hinted or you mentioned that uh, when I brought up maybe how involved has China been this whole time, or at least maybe influencing some of the actions that have occurred because it is in their best interest, seemingly. And you said that's a bit of a Wall Street controversy right now. Do you have any theories you can share on what's being discussed and maybe what, how involved China has been the whole time? Is this any 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 threat? Well, there there? I mean, there was a guy... Some sort of nationalist politician, you
1: can see it online, you can see it on Twitter, and literally late December, he yelled in the Russian parliament into a microphone, you're going to regret this on whatever the date was, February the 27th at 4 a.m. You know what I mean? He named the date of time of the invasion. So they knew they were going to invade. I thought Putin was going to make me believe he was going to invade and then not. You know what I mean? So I was always waiting for the moment where he made me believe it it would actually happen because I was saying I don't think he'd be that dumb. And it was interesting because i never got to the point where I believed it until it actually happened. So from a market triple psychology point of view, it's kind of interesting. But anyway, you know, we know it's widely, widely reported, basically, that the Chinese agreed with Putin that that it wouldn't happen during the Winter Olympics. And sure enough, the Winter Olympics closing ceremony, it wasn't, I don't know, a few days before they invaded. Right. So everybody kind of knew it was going to happen. The brilliant job that Biden did and western intelligence was that they told everyone really loud and proud this guy's going to invade and he's going to false yeah. flag a reason to do it so they yeah. undermined the moral such as it was moral case that putin would have in terms of public opinion to actually do the invasion and all this stuff about you know nazis and ukraine and stuff and you can see the president is just a total dude it just completely undermined the moral case for the war which of course then caused the response to the invasion to be much sterner on the part of the Western powers, because they knew they had the moral high, high ground. And that means that you can make very aggressive, firm decisions when you've got very clearly the moral high ground, which they did. And so they undermined Putin from an intelligence point of view. And again, I was dissing the uh, Western intelligence services after things like the Iraq War of 2003, where they disgraced right. themselves. And sure enough, you know, there's me joking. Yeah, uh, they're saying that the invasion's going to be on February the 29th and all this stuff. There is no February the 29th. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> So, but
0: sure that enough, day like, did yeah. come and go, right? Like mid February, that was what the New York Times, MSNBC was all yeah. saying. They had a date and, like, more or less a time. This is yeah, and it, was it was widely disseminated.
1: So, this is all, you know, good hubris for the analyst, you know what I mean? Because you then learn for the next time it happens. Because, by the way, I, my career started with Gulf War I, right? So, it's not my first rodeo to go through this stuff and to second guess it in real time. Because what's fascinating about doing this on Wall Street is the market's trading as we speak. And you're trying to value the future. So you're having to put all this stuff together real fast, you know, and you can make yourself look like a real idiot. Uh, but at the same time, if you want to make money doing this, you're going to have to do that. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you don't make a call, cool, you can't be right. Or whatever, you, you, you would think of it as Wayne Gretzky. I think he said, if you don't make a shot, you can't score. <laughs> but um, anyway, the, the reality is, yeah, China is pretty sinister and I'm no fan of the Chinese earth communist party she at all you know i can't stand the totalitarianism my father as i mentioned was a british diplomat so i'm very bitter about hong kong and the deal that we did notionally you mentioned the opium wars you clearly have knowledge of the deep history there so britain is not without blood on its hands don't get me wrong yeah but i don't really appreciate these totalitarian regimes and i think we should do everything we can to get rid of them so China is sinister, you know, and, and what they're doing for themselves is in their own interests. And it isn't necessarily for the greater good, even of their own people. It's for the benefit of the Communist Party leadership, you know? Mm. And I'm basically opposed to them. So where does that lead us? Well, we'll see. I mean, I think one of the conclusions of the Russian note I did in early January was they're going China, exactly as you've been doing the work yourself. China's going to use this as an opportunity to buy a lot more energy from Russia. There's also the theory that there's no limitation on China buying US Canadian food. They're going to buy all our food as fast as possible as well. It's one of the working hedge fund theories I was talking about yesterday with some of the top hedge funds in New York. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that you've got to watch that's going to happen here. Because, you know, whilst we're talking about peace and the failure of the Russian invasion, as of last night, you know, I was on CNBC saying, short oil, long tech as a trade, this has structurally changed a lot of things in the world, Um, probably raised the oil price on a structural basis, further to the question about reinvestment, certainly raised the value of Canadian and US oil relative to Russian, et cetera. You've got to think of some long-term structural things here because good investing is about getting the themes, long-term mega themes right, and then you can trade as much as you want. But we all know, kind of, unless you're Steve Cohen, trading basically destroys value really fast. <laughs> yeah. Whereas yeah. long-term investing is, tends to like work well for Warren Buffett. Yeah. So you know, you've got to kind of derive some of the conclusions that you're deriving, and 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 you know, you're right to do that. And one thing I'm going to have to think about as an analyst is, okay, what are the? I call it writing 103 analysis. So I've got to get the 101 right, which is what actually happened here, and what happens next. Which would be 102 and then 103 which is where i try and write the research is what are the conclusions beyond 102 you know what i mean so we've got to get a the basics right b the derivatives right and c we got to get into the gamma and that's
0: mm-hmm. where i add try and add value
1: and where yes. you can be
0: just horrendously wrong as you know with gamma so okay i know i said that was my last question but i have one more quick one and if you got to jump you just you just tell me <laughs> paul but can you just elaborate on the uh, short? I told little... you, I, I told you, I've got to watch European
1: football, dude. <laughs> city yeah, are playing.
0: You put it on. I, I,
1: I was at college in City. They used to be like a pub team, man. They were like a pub team. You wouldn't. Not one of the City players when I was at college in Manchester would have made the current team. Not one of them. <laughs>
0: i love it i i never got into football or soccer as we call it here except for one world cup season and i totally got hooked and i was waking up at like 4 a.m to watch games spain was my team and i remember i went online and i bought a jersey of the star player that year and i can't even remember his name but i was so in and i was like spain's got this (laughs) I go online, I order the jersey, and 45 minutes later, they lost to France and got booted out. <laughs> yeah, On the jersey there, like, is
1: like 100 bucks, right? The
0: biggest bandwagon fan idiot ever. Why do you are you
1: into other sports or just not into sports particularly?
0: Yeah, I grew up playing hockey and yeah. uh, and I played for years, but these days martial arts are my thing. I kickbox and box, and yeah, I love it. Yeah,
1: I sometimes go and watch the Rangers. I mean, it's it's great to watch live. I have to say, it's. Um... Fun. Actually, I'm just looking at this in Man City. I forgot they won the first leg like, 5 nil. So actually, the game that we are talking about is Real Madrid against PSG. That's big. That's Real Madrid against PSG. You've got some of the great players certainly playing <laughs> for PSG. Real are pretty weak right now, but we'll see
0: what happens. Anyway, sorry, what was the question? Well, you, your trade, your trade idea, you said long tech, short oil. And just give me uh, some context there. What What are you doing there?
1: Well, no, that was just last, you know, if you look, it's pretty funny, but I went on a run from August, 2020 on CNBC fast money of just a ridiculous hot hand of trades, which are up like 200%. I should be a very rich, I should have a Lamborghini based on what was a series of pair trades about every three or four months. But of course, you know, I knew, and I joke during, you can, you can see them all online, you know, it's, it's, it's all on fast money, but basically it, or certainly for the first couple of times, I was like, I've got, I've got to stop doing this because I've been too right, you know? And then last night, I was just saying, finally, which, you know, I'd called for negative oil prices in 2020, which obviously was quite a call. Um, yes. The Exxon, long Exxon, short Apple, which was a bad call on short Apple, but, it, but an incredible call, short Exxon in 2020, excuse me, long Exxon in 2020. I rolled that into like long EOG, short Tesla, Long fang, Long Fang, short fang, which was long diamondback, short Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, you know, all these all these kind of catchy things. And yes. um, all of them had a basic theme, which was the idea that if the Fed wants inflation, which was pretty crazy thing to want, but they basically have to inflate away the debt. So they kind of have to do it. Yes. If they're doing that, you're going to get oil inflation and the Fed can't control oil. And so all these trades, which sometimes I publish them, I, I don't like to do it too much because it's, you know, I don't want to upset the market gods. I mean, for example, just looking at this one, I'd forgotten, but at the beginning of this year, I said long MPC, short Rivian and Rivian at hundred billion dollars was quite the best short you could possibly imagine because a lot of these crappy little companies that have their revenues don't have hundred billion dollar market gaps. You know what I mean? Mm. But this one actually had a hundred billion dollar market cap. It was just too easy. So having said that, all of the trades were basically long oil, short tech, right? Okay. And last night I said, you're going to get peace. I think we're cooked out on how high the oil price can go. Trading wise, you want to be long tech, short oil. Now I have a, a superstition, which is that if a trade works on the day you make it, it doesn't work. So I'm nervous because last night on TV saying long oil, long short te- short oil, long tech. Actually, just worked so outrageously this morning. It doesn't really help my clients because they can't get the trade on it. Actually, it's almost done by the time they're going to do it. Yeah, and it's this sort of double double thing because ultimately, you know, we're, we're not trying to um, we're not trying to trade here. You know what I mean? We're trying to get structural positions going. So really, what you want to do from here is you want to watch the weakness in oil, probably down to to a hundred, and then buy into them. And there's a lot of good companies here you know i've named a few of them i like Diamondback back a lot i like devon i like pioneer they're all fairly obvious plays on oil but they're also structurally uh, increased in value basically because of what happened in russia and right. the oil age just isn't ending and we said it wouldn't which was why i could call for exxon to uh to be a buy in 2020 because you knew the cycle would reassert itself <clears throat> and arguably what we're doing here and you know, guys like you getting me on podcasts and why I accept, quite frankly, is I'm trying to educate people about the issue of energy density, about the issue of how to correctly and intelligently address the environment without destroying poor people, uh, you know, without increasing energy poverty, highlighting that China's, you know, a huge part of the emissions problem. And, you know, the plastic bag you used to go to the supermarket really isn't, you know, all of this stuff people need to educate themselves about better. But ultimately, we're going to need more Canadian oil, you know, so you can kind of buy any of these things on an investment basis. And, you know, some of this stuff, whenever it gets to 20 times 30 times EBITDA, it's very, very difficult for a company to ever justify that valuation. It's not that hard, right. And the challenge, as you know, is just that the market can stay irrational for longer than you can stay solvent. So it's, you know, you've got to sort of do this in a very Everybody wants the kind of glamour of throwing the book around and being long, short, dated puts and stuff, and I do it all the time. But I lose it all, you know. Whenever I actually just put money into long-term structural trades, they tend to work pretty well because I've thought about it, and they're measured, and you average in, and all these things, you know. And I'm not here to lecture people, but uh, the big theme is that you're probably you've probably re- seen ESG because it's kind of bullshit. Uh, in terms of what people say they're doing to help the environment kind of doesn't. And the idea that oil and gas greatly damage the environment, particularly in the case of natural gas, is actually false. So, you know, I think structurally long US natural gas, long Canadian oil I like, you know, and then there's maybe some names where you're still looking at significant overvaluation. One of the areas that I'm very concerned about would be EVs. You know, there's just too many manufacturers chasing What I don't think will be a hugely successful push to get the average American to drive an electric vehicle. I think the average rich American will have two cars, one of which is electric, but I just don't see the EV replacing the Camry, you know? And that's just because it's never going to cost $22,000 to buy an EV compared to $22,000 to buy a Camry, whatever the price is now of a Camry. Right. One thing just to throw in there for, for shits and giggles is, uh, you know that the price of the Camry is about the price of a Model T Ford if you price it in gold? Boom, boom, boom. Price of the Camry
0: equivalent to
1: Model T Ford if priced in gold. Yeah, it costs about as many ounces of gold to buy a Camry as it costs Mm -hmm. ounces of gold to buy a Model T Ford.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Fascinating. All right. Makes sense, right?
0: We'll sign off with that factoid. Look, Paul, this is super fun. Thank you.